Amen. Indeed, our subject this morning is church membership. We're going to be doing a topical expositional message. Maybe you didn't know that was possible, but what that means is we're not anchoring in one text. We're going to a whole lot of Bible texts to explain and expose what does the Bible teach about church membership. We're doing this in light of really what we had been studying as we work through Matthew, namely chapters 16 and 18. We heard about how you, actually the members of the local church, you are the ones who have been entrusted with the authority to receive and dismiss members, or in Jesus' language, to bind and loose. And we've been going over that. And I even alluded to last week that there's going to be some changes in the way, in particular, we receive members. And I'll go into detail about that later by the end of this sermon. But the point is, we need to look at a fresh What does it mean to be a church member? What is a church member? Why should one be a church member? And what's the responsibility of a church member? These are the questions we're going to look at. Because membership, though, just to step back, they're funny things, aren't they? I mean, you have memberships that you probably love and value and prize, maybe because they were hard to get into, or maybe you love the perks of it, of what that membership provides you. Other memberships you maybe don't even think about very much. I know on my keychain, I had an old gym membership that had long ago expired, that I just was apparently too lazy to get it off of my keychain because I never used it. I never thought about it. Or think about your rewards club memberships that you have with grocery stores or fast food joints. I doubt you value those very much. And there's some other memberships that maybe you're a part of and it has some kind of value. You just wish you weren't a part of it, right? Maybe you're part of a timeshare membership or the membership to your homeowners association. You wish you were out of that to pay those fees and and heed to maybe what seemed like to you strange requirements. Well, when you think about church membership, though, what comes to your mind? Is that a membership and belonging you value? Is that a role you take seriously? It is something, is it something that you think about? Or is it like that old gym membership card that hangs on your key ring that you never give much thought to? Well, of course, what we'll see is we survey a whole host of texts this morning, and we're going to be moving like lightning speed through Scripture. So you might just need to take notes of some references we make and then go back and do some study later on your own. But the point is this, is that as the Bible talks about the church and who the members of the church are, this is not some throwaway membership. This is not something you think lightly of. Rather, belonging and being part of a local church, being a committed member of a local church, we'll see, is a pivotal part of your Christian life. Such that, to summarize it this way this morning, being a faithful Christian, being a faithful follower of Jesus, means being a faithful church member. So the call then to us is fulfill Christ's call, join and care for the church. Now, the last few weeks, we've been in Matthew, and we've been talking about membership and who has charge in the church and so forth. And some of you, you're not members, and you're like, oh, good. Uh, I had all these sermons about membership that wasn't for me. Well, this one's for you, right? This is an urging, join the church. If you can't join this church, find one you can join. That's the call here. But if you can join this one, just join if you're a believer in Christ. Now, some of you are members, and maybe you're thinking, whew, we get relief this morning. This is for all the people that aren't members, not me. Well, listen up. We've been talking about, we're giving you guys, our members at Grace, the keys to release and to bind members. So you need to start thinking through, how am I going to use those keys? How am I going to use that authority responsibly? You need to be thinking through questions like what we're going to deal with this morning so that you can not only join the church if you haven't yet, but so that you can care for the membership of the church because that's really what we're getting at, what this is about. 
So we're going to deal with this by asking four questions and answering them about church membership this morning. I give you the four questions here. Let me survey those, and then we'll go one by one unpacking these. But the first thing you need to consider is who can be a church member? Who are the people that can actually be part of the church? Because it's not everybody. A part of the church is actually that your membership that's separate from the world. Well, who are those people that should be called out and separate from the world? Second, what marks out a church member? What are those things that distinguish and show who a church member is and is not, at least according to Scripture? We'll look at that. Third, very survey, but we'll consider briefly what are the responsibilities for a church member? What is a church member called to do or be in the life of the church? And then finally, we'll get to that last question, at least a Grace Bible, how does one become a church member? Because I'll need to highlight for you how that'll change, that process will change very slightly from what we've been practicing before. But let's get to it then. Let's consider that first question, because again, it's so important to our Christian life, who can be a church member? And to turn to that answer, I want to go to the scripture where we opened this morning in the scripture reading, and that's Acts chapter 2. So turn there. We'll be launching out of Acts chapter 2 repeatedly during this sermon. And what we have in Acts chapter 2, this is the beginning, really, of the church. This is where the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son, comes and indwells God's people, the church. And at this moment, then, the Apostle Peter speaks up on behalf of the apostles and gives, really, the first Christian sermon. And in this sermon, there's an offer of the gospel given out to all those who listen. And it's that offer of the gospel that the Lord uses to, to draw more people to Christ, to draw people to faith that they receive the Holy Spirit. And so then we see too in here that they are then brought into the number of the church. Because look down to verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. By the end of Peter's charge that he makes in the sermon, here's what we read. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. These 3,000 souls plus the first believers who are around there, that makes up who this new church is here in Jerusalem. These are the folks that responded to the gospel's call. They are the ones, too, that then join and form the church. And as we see them, they, they are not just a number, but they are a gathering of people assembled together. That's what we find in verse 42. So as we look here in Acts chapter 2, we start to uncover the characteristics, the essential aspects of who a church member is. And for brevity and clarity's sake, I just want to highlight two things, two crucial things. And the first is this. Who can be a church member? A church member must and can only be a repentant, that is, changed believer. Who can be a church member? They must be a repentant, that is, changed believer. So as Peter preaches the gospel, these Jews who had crucified Jesus, they are cut to the heart, we read in verse 37. And so as they realize their error and their wrong, that the one they had killed actually is the one that God's going to use to redeem those who trust in Him, that Christ is the only one to make them right with God, they say, what can we do, Peter? They're begging Him to know, is it too late for us? And to that then we hear Peter's gospel call. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the first aspect of that you see, it's just this call, repent. And repent indicates a turning, a change. So we say a 180 degree change in your life. 
Repentance entails, yes, a change in your mind, but that necessarily results in a change in your life. That's biblical repentance. It's not just feeling sorry for your sin. It's not just saying that you're sorry for your sin, but you've actually turned away and rejected your sin, and you're pursuing God. That's repentance. Again, for these Jews who heard this first Christian sermon, that meant a turning from their rejection of Jesus to turn around and embrace Him, to embrace Him as the sacrifice God has given that they might be have peace with God. It's not through them and what they do, but it's through Jesus. That was a total mind shift for them. You're talking about repentance, Rick, but I thought we were saved by faith, not necessarily by repentance. We're certainly not saved by works. And that's true. We are saved by faith alone, trust in Christ alone. Famously, Paul calls to the Philippian jailer with the hopeful gospel word in Acts 16 and says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At least recorded there, we don't have anything about repentance noted. But as you survey all of Scripture, understand this, belief and repentance are just same sides of the gospel conversion coin. The converted person believes and they repent, and it all goes together. Faith talks about or emphasizes that aspect of relying on Christ, that his death for your sins was enough, and that's all that was needed, that you would be right with God. Well, on the other side, repentance expresses our change of devotion, our turning from our idolatry, returning from our life of sin, returning from our love of sin, and returning towards Christ, not only just in faith, but in obedience. We want to obey Him now. Faith and repentance go together in the Christian gospel message. And you see this even as Paul draws those things together in Acts chapter 20. But even as you survey the rest of the book of Acts, sometimes you hear the gospel preached and that the word is repent. Sometimes you hear the gospel preached as we saw in Philippians 16, and the word is believe. The point is you can say either one or you can say both. But the outcome of conversion would be the same, a faith, a trust in Christ that doesn't just come out of your mouth, but it makes a difference in your life. You've been converted. You've been in the biblical sense, we'd say regenerated, given new life by the Holy Spirit such that it's undeniable you've been changed. It's a faith that changes your life such that who can be a church member, a repenting and so then true believer. Now, what will that change look like in a new believer? And it will look like a host of things, depending on who they, who they are, what their life was like before they came to Christ. But this much can be sure, going back to Acts chapter 2, the one who is converted genuinely is the one who gathers and commits to the church, is committed and loves the fellow believers in Christ. Look at this. We find this as we look at verse 41 of chapter 2. You see, these new believers, they publicly side with Jesus. They declare publicly their faith. They were baptized, that is. Again, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And note, they're merely not added to a list, but they're added to a family. They're adopted into the family of God's people, into the church, to the church and the people they now belong to. Which makes sense as the character of these believers unfolds. Again, this isn't a list. This isn't a membership that's on their keychain that they forget about. It's a new membership, a new belonging that dominates their life. Such that they are devoted to it. Do you see that? Look at verse 42. They're committed to Christ and the gospel, but they're also committed to one another. 
Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the gospel. But what else do they devote themselves to? The fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They're devoted in caring for one another, to the fellowship. The unity and worship we share as believers in Christ. They're devoted to caring to one another as well. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together. I mean, they're spending time together. They must gather together. And they had all things in common. Or go down to verse 46. They were devoted to being together day by day, it says, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. By this example, you see, you don't get saved from sin and come to Christ without a love rising up in your heart for God's people, for the church. Or to ask it this way, can you really love Christ and not love those that He loves so dearly? If you have no or little interest in the church, can you really say you have much interest in Christ then? To be sure, that wasn't the case in the early church. They bonded, they formed this new family, a faith bound together by a common trust in Christ. So Grace Church members, as you think about prospective members, people that might apply for membership, who's even eligible? Who might even possibly think about being a member? Well, first, are they a genuine believer? And not just in word, but has Christ changed their life? Has their faith in Christ changed them and changing them? And second, has that change resulted in a love and commitment to Christ's people? Does this person love the church and want to be joined to it? That's crucial. But not only are new believers devoted to the church, but we see that the church claims and is devoted to them, to these new believers. So we're asking, what's that question? What are the marks? What marks out a true church member? What distinguishes a church member? See, as the, as the new member leans into the family of faith of the church, the church leans into them and gives, us, gives them badges of belonging. And we know those to be the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table. Baptism and the Lord's table is the way the church marks out who their family members are. And so to revisit Acts 2 again, we see both of these marks branded upon these new believers. We even heard the call to baptism as Peter opened with this gospel call to repentance. Look at verse 38 again. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And those who did believe, who trusted Christ, they got baptized. Looks like right away. Look at verse 41. And so those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. But notice the way that reads, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. You see there, even though he commanded baptism in verse 38, here when they actually get baptized, it's a passive thing. Baptism is something you receive more than it is something you do. In other words, you can't baptize yourself. If you haven't been baptized, you can't just go by yourself and jump in the James and say, I'm now a Christian. That's not how this works. See, the church baptized them, these believers, as they were gathered together. And they added those who were baptized to their own number, so marking them out as part of the church. And indeed, this makes sense of what we know from the Great Commission. That was Jesus' final charges there in Matthew chapter 28. As Jesus gets ready to depart and go to heaven, He gives us our mission, our call of making disciples. 
It reads like this in Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then he explores for us, how do you do this? How do you make a disciple? What does that look like? Well, the first thing he says is this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. But here it is. He gives us the formula. How do you make a disciple? How do you make a follower of Christ? How do you make one that is now a part of the kingdom of God? What do you need to do? You need to preach the gospel. You need to call them to trust in Christ alone. And if any would do so and repent, you, the church, must baptize them. And as you've baptized them and marked them, then you're calling and teaching them to follow Jesus. In one sense, it's really that simple. But the point we're bringing out here is this. As you survey the New Testament, there really is no notion of an unbaptized Christian. In the New Testament world, that's just an oxymoron. There's no such thing. If they heard about your faith, they assumed right away you were baptized. Why? Because baptism is how you mark a Christian. It's not just how you personally identify with Jesus, but it's how fellow believers identify you as a Christian with them. That's how the church claims believers as part of their own and like faith. So maybe that's you this morning. Do you believe? And if you do, have you been baptized? We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, baptism is a one and done thing. You get baptized once. You don't get baptized over and over again because you think you fell away and got converted again. That's not how that works. Nor every time you join a new church, you'll be baptized. No. You come to faith, you get baptized. We take that. You've been marked out with Christ in the church. That's a one and done thing, though. But there is a mark that the church administers. Another mark how we mark our members that we revisit over and over again. And of course, it's when we remember the cross at the Lord's table. And we see that too mentioned here in Acts chapter 2. For as they are newly converted and they're committed to one another and gathering together, we read in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, but what else but to the breaking of bread. This is the breaking of bread in communion, the breaking of bread in the Lord's table. And this is the abiding regular mark that you are part of the church. Indeed, it's the celebration of that table that works as the embodiment of our faith. It's what actually draws us together. What do we rally around? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what draws us in. It works as like the center of gravity that pulls us all in orbit around Jesus. It's what pulls us into the orbit of the church, remembering the gospel. And so with that in mind, look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Flip over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. And we see how fundamental the corporate nature of the Lord's table indeed is. That this is a ordinance for the church to celebrate together. 1 Corinthians 11 is the most detailed teaching we have in the New Testament about celebrating the Lord's table. And it's come to us because the Corinthian church was messing it up. Because instead of drawing the church in together in unity around the gospel, they were leveraging the Lord's table as a way to fracture and to divide in the church, namely to exalt themselves above other believers, such that he chides them in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 11. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, and you see the context here, it's all about partaking the Lord's table together. When you come together as the church, I hear there are divisions among you. There's this great dissonance. You're all coming together, which you should be doing, but then you're leveraging the Lord's table to divide each other, such that whatever you're doing when you get together, 
It's not the Lord's table that you're observing. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's table that you eat. Again, because it's not bringing them together. They're exalting each other over it into the haves and the haves nots, and they're now fractured and divided, turning the Lord's table upside down. And so what, what does Paul have to do? He has to reteach them. He has to reteach them what this table is all about. And what is this observance all about? Of course, it's about remembering the gospel, remembering what Jesus did on our behalf. But did you realize the Lord's table is not something you do by yourself? It's not something you can do alone. Even as we all gather in the room and observe the Lord's table together, it isn't mainly about you closing your eyes in personal devotion to Jesus. It's not about your personal love for Jesus. That's not what that table is about. Even as Jesus instituted it, remember He commanded and He said, do this in remembrance of me. In the original language, though, the very way He said it, He didn't say, you singular do this, you personally in your own privacy of your home or in your own private heart. No, He says, you all do this in remembrance of me. It's a corporate command that has to be fulfilled by the church together. You can't do it by yourself. Even look down here in 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread, now, guess what? Like we've been talking about in Matthew 18, this is not a singular you. If Paul was from the south, he'd be saying y'all right now, right? As often as y'all eat this bread and y'all drink this cup, y'all, what are y'all doing? As a church, what are you doing together? Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This is something we do all together. We proclaim all together the Lord's death until He comes. That's why we partake together. And so that's why we welcome and receive one another at the table, not just Jesus. We're coming and proclaiming our faith together. Hence, that's why Paul exhorts him at the end. Look at verse 33. He says this, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Or you could translate it, receive or welcome one another. The one another is crucial to this table. It's the one another of the church together proclaiming their faith. That Christ alone is our hope. That His death for sins is all that we have. This is how Jesus marks out His people. Regular remembrance together at this table. So then the ordinance of baptism marks us out from the very beginning of our faith. And the Lord's table identifies us as the church regularly, week after week, month after month, however often the local church takes it. For as we come to this table together, again, we're not just coming privately between us and Jesus, but we're coming together to look around and say, yes, these are fellow believers I know. I know they love the gospel. I've seen them been changed by Jesus. We rejoice that he's a living God that's changed us, and he's our only hope until he returns. These are my fellow church members. May we always remember and hold fast to the gospel. That's what we're remembering as we come to that table every month. So to draw it out then, to think about, well, what marks out a church member? First, if you're a believer, again, as we've said, and you haven't been baptized, in the New Testament world, that is strange, so odd. So obey Jesus and get baptized. If you have questions about that, talk to an elder. Talk to me afterward at the visitor table. We want to help you obey Jesus in this. Furthermore, if you're a believer, let's assume you're baptized, and you regularly partake of the Lord's table, but you're not yet a member here, again, that's weird. That's strange. Now, I grant, in Acts chapter 20, 
you have a scenario where you have visiting Christians, namely Paul and some of his associates, they go to a church that they visit. It's not their home church. And they partake communion together. Again, that's normal, but that's only normal as a visitor. If you're a regular part of that body, you would take at the Lord's table if they would let you. So if you're taking regularly of the table here, but haven't assented to us and joined the church formally, why not? Again, in the New Testament world, that's odd, that's strange. For it's these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table, that mark out who the church is, who the believers are in the world. Okay, so we've talked about who a church member might be, and we've talked about what marks out a church member. Well, now we turn very briefly to discuss what are some responsibilities for the church member? And I could just put as the scripture reference up there, New Testament, right? You could go survey all of Jesus' teachings and the teachings of the apostles, and you'll get a grip on how are you to be a responsible church member. If I could put it in a phrase, though, what does it mean? It means care spiritually for the church, care for the church. That is your responsibility as a church member. What does that look like, though? I'm going to, in rapid-fire fashion, just highlight four. How do you care for the church body? Well, one, you do this. You prize and pursue, pursue unity in the church body. Remember, that's what Jesus prayed for us. Remember this, John 17, verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That's what Jesus wanted for his church, unity, oneness. Or consider the great responsibility that Paul puts at the feet of the church in Ephesus. You can turn there or listen, but here we are, Ephesians chapter 4. Here's where Paul opens that chapter. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is heavy stuff. Walk worthy of your calling. Well, what does that look like or how do we do that? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. What are you going to do? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's your mission. That's your pursuit. Pursue unity in the church. Keep us united around Christ. And next, how do you do that? In part, you serve the body. Use your gifts to build up and serve the body. That's why Christ has given you such equipment. And your leaders too. As we go on reading in Ephesians chapter 4, we find this. In verse 11, we read in Ephesians 4, In Christ gave the apostles and prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, gave them to the church. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So remember, Your elders are not the ministers in Grace Bible Church. The members are the ministers. You have been sanctioned, commissioned for the work of ministry, ordained even, you could put it that way, by being called to Him. Your shepherds and teachers and elders were equipping you for that work. What's the work you've been called to? He says in verse 12, to build up the body of Christ. Okay, to edify the body, to build it up. What does that look like? Explore it a little more. It looks like this in verse 13. Until, so you've done your job of building us up sufficiently when this happens. When we all attain to the unity of the faith. When we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You finished your work of building up the body when we all live like Jesus. So you got work to do until he gets back is what that means. 
and with me in the forefront, helping me. But that's our work as church members. We're to help our fellow members attain to the unity of the faith and maturity of walking after Jesus. How can you do that? How can you foster that? You need to be thinking over that question even as you come to gather on a Sunday morning. You're not coming here just to fill your own belly with sermons. You're coming to edify and build up your brothers and sisters that they might walk faithfully until Jesus comes back. Third, as we return to Acts 2, we see this. A major part of how you care for the body is you give to the Lord's work and you meet needs. You give to the Lord's work and you meet even physical needs in the church. And we saw this right away as the church started assembling in Acts 2. We read this in Acts 2, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. As you go through the Bible, this is the, the pattern of the New Testament. They gave on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day on Sunday, and they distributed it to the saints as they had need. Like we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it commends that church and says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us, to Paul and these other missionaries. The point is, regular giving was the pattern in the New Testament church. But finally, in building up to really where we've all been going, what is the responsibility of the church member? In part, to receive and dismiss members, to together bind and loose. And we treaded that ground in detail last week. So if you want more on that, go back and listen to the sermon from last week. But hear the charge again from Matthew 16, to bind and loose. Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you all, right, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Except there in Matthew 16, he said that first to Peter. But then when he repeats it, and we went over this, in Matthew 18 is where he includes the whole church and authorizes the whole church for this. The local assembly is the one who then has the power to bind and loose. We see that in Matthew 18, verse 18. And that's where we've been building these last few weeks as we work through these passages. That you, the members of GBC, you've been given by Christ the call, the authority, the responsibility to receive and dismiss your members. So you need to be thinking through questions like we've been looking at this morning. Like, who, who could be a church member? What's the fruit of a true believer in someone's life? What are the marks that distinguish who a member is? Considering, is this person willing to commit to the church, willing to serve and to give and to pursue unity in the church? If so, that's the kind of person you should be receiving in the membership. But even still, I'll instruct you, the elders, we will disciple you and lead you in this. But remember what we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul instructed the church there, but then he said, hey, you got to do it. It's your call. So, which brings us to then the actual process. How does one become a church member? How is one then bound and loosed as a member of Grace Bible? As I noted last week and already this morning, we need to discuss this in part because the process is changing, though very slightly. Why does it need to change? Because to this point, the elders are the ones who've been receiving or binding the members. You all, the membership, you've loosed members, especially in the cases of 
restorative discipline. But we, the elders, are the ones who have been taking in, been binding members. So we're giving you back the keys, so to speak, so you can use the authority that Christ has actually given you to not only loose members, but bind them. Again, this all accords with what we've been studying in Matthew 18. When the Lord Jesus tells the church, now Matthew 18, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the members who have that authority, not your elder or elders even. So as we give you back the keys, what's the process then going to look like? Well, it's going to look much the same. And it begins in the same way. How do you become a member at Grace? We're just getting practical brass tacks here. You fill out a member application form. That's how. That's where it all begins. And in that form, we ask you questions. Not to try and trap you. Not to try and trap. This is not the SAT. You know, we're just asking you, hey, you say you believe in Jesus. Who do you think Jesus is? Do we believe in the same one? Right? What do you understand about the gospel? How did Christ change you? How did he draw you to himself? Have you been baptized? What was your previous church experience like? These are the kind of things we're asking. If you got more questions about what the questions are, the easiest way to find the answers, just go online and look the application. Or see me after and I'll give you a paper one. That's step one. You fill out an application. Step two, which again is the same. The membership applicant is interviewed by the elders. So once your application's been completed, it goes to the church office and then it gets sent out to the elders and we all read it not in our meeting together, but we read it privately and we come back. And then as we come back to our elders meeting, then one of the elders gets assigned to conduct this membership interview with you. And at least two people will go. There'll be in two elders sometimes, or sometimes an elder and his wife, or sometimes there'll be an elder and just another member. But we go and we start talking to you to interview you to really see, do you want to be a member here? This is not an interview to be uh, intimidated by. Don't need to be scared about it. We're mainly just asking you things that you already wrote down and said you believe. We want to hear the gospel come out of your own mouth, even if it means just reading what you wrote. (laughs) We want to hear your understanding of Christ. How did Christ change you? I mean, I trust many of you know this, the members here at Grace, how encouraging it is to hear at the baptismal testimonies how Christ intervenes and saves sinners. Isn't that just such a joy? I trust you know that even personally when you meet with members, uh, you might catch up and say, brother, tell me how Christ drew you to himself. Have you ever been encouraged by those stories? It's amazing. Again, like the, if there is a miracle, the miracle of regeneration as the gospel is preached and ministered in the heart is astounding. Well, as an elder, selfishly, I love meeting with prospective members just to hear that story. That's partly the kind of things we're, we're getting at. We also go over things like, do you understand our teaching here? Like our, what we teach? Are you, are you going to submit to that teaching? Do you know what's required of you as a member? Like a little bit of the things we talked about. Do you understand church discipline? Again, like we've been talking about in Matthew 18. Have you been gifted by the Lord to serve the church? How can we serve you? Because the interview as well, it's not one-sided either. This is your opportunity as you're coming into membership that you get to ask the questions before it's too late. (laughs) Because once you're in, we got you. (laughs) It's a time for the prospective member to ask about our doctrine or how they can serve or whatever about the church. Now, the next step after that interview takes place would be an elder recommendation. That is, at an elders meeting, somebody got assigned to do the interview. That elder goes and does the interview. And then the next week, that elder comes back and gives the report back to the other elders. How'd the membership interview go? Did they profess clear faith? 
Did they seem converted? And of course, the elders have read the application document. Maybe they had a question. Oh, did you ask them about this? We'll follow up on that. But the point is, that elder who had the interview, he'll make a recommendation, or maybe the two elders. Yes, we're ready to receive so-and-so to membership. What do you men think? Now, as we look at that, we've read the testimony, and we trust the testimony of our brothers who met with the prospective member. So if we have nothing to object, we trust our elders, and we trust this member, what they wrote, and we're agreed to receive them into membership. And that means the elders collectively recommend the applicant for membership. That's the way the process has always gone. But here's where the change comes in. Because before, that's where it ended. Once the elders were agreed around that table, you're in. Then we'd send you an email, and then on the Sunday morning, you'd be announced with that cute slide with your face and then a couple you know, little snippets from your testimony. And you as the fellow members, you would just come in and in the announcements, here's our newest member. Except now we're changing that. We're, not, we're changing it from when the elders are agreed We're not agreed to, this is our new member. We're agreed to say, we recommend this person to the congregation for membership. It's a slight difference, but a significant one. So what that means is the elders, we're preparing then to give you back the keys so you can receive this person. So that's the last step. How does one become a member? You need to be affirmed by the congregation for membership. So on a Sunday morning, again, during the announcements, again, that'll be the cute picture and a little snippet of the testimony, but instead of saying newest member, what's it going to say? Here's your newest member candidate. The elders met with brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. We heard their testimony. They love Jesus. They love this church. They want to serve you. We, the elders, have vetted them. We're commending them to be received in membership. But again, the elders can't do it on their own. We need you to receive them based on what we've studied in Matthew 18. Well, how are you going to get to know them? So we want to provide for you a little more information on them. We want to give you a, maybe an edited down version of their application. And we're still figuring out the best way to distribute that to you, to our members at Grace. I imagine partly we'll have things printed and on that back counter out in the foyer. But we want to figure out a secure electronic way to distribute uh, those testimonies as well. Again, the encouragement that comes from reading the way Christ intervenes and changes hearts so delightful. I don't want to steal that from you. We want to embrace that and have you take that up with us. But in the end, the goal would be that you get to read that application, that you get to start to know them a little more yourself. Maybe you'll go and try and catch that prospective member for for a coffee or something to hear their testimony from their own mouth. But I want you then to pray for them. I want you to think about how might you help them walk with Christ. And of course, you need to consider whether they are fit to be a member here. Because, and this is another advantage to doing it the way Christ tells us to, (laughs) is that we, the elders, can meet with somebody, we can read their application, but we don't maybe know them as well as you do. Maybe you know something about the prospective member that we don't know. And so now, let's say you got a member candidate put before you, and you know something that gives you a question. So what should you do about it? Here's what you need to do. You should go talk to an elder is what you need to do. You need to share your concerns with us. What you should not do is hold your concerns the two weeks or whatever the period would be that we come to the Sunday evening when we're suggesting, hey, membership, are you ready to receive them? And then we got one person say, no, I have all these concerns. No, 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 no. You need to tell us your concerns right away before that ever gets there. Understand, we're going to give you two weeks at least as a period to affirm the testimony 
of these member candidates. Much the way we do deacons or elders, as they get put up, you get 30 days, in those cases, to come back to an elder and say, yes, I affirm them, or I have concerns about them. Now we're going to give you two weeks just for these new members. You've read their testimony. Maybe I've met with them. But if you've got concerns, you need to get that to us before we would affirm them at a Sunday evening. Why? Because we want to save some serious embarrassment, and we also want to maintain order. We're not going to turn those Sunday evenings to some kind of public forum debating people's morality, especially for people that are not even members here. So when you hear of a member candidate, you need to prayerfully share your concerns with an elder if you have any. Otherwise, hear how this works. If the elders don't hear any reservations, we assume that you affirm them based on what you've read or based on what you know about them. So you won't have the opportunity probably to get a meal with everyone that becomes a potential member, but you will have read their testimony. And the issue that we're really dealing with as the church, do you have any reason to doubt their faith? If you do, we need to hear about it. Otherwise, we assume if we don't hear anything, that we'll put them for affirmation before you at a Sunday evening fellowship to be received as our newest member and received into our spiritual care, not just by us as the elders, but by us as a whole church. And in a way, this is really what we're dealing with. This is what this is all about. Giving you the keys, letting you feel the responsibility, the right weight and responsibility to care for the body, to care for every soul that comes in our fellowship. When is this all going to happen? Well, like I said, we got a few details we need to work out, but I'd say by October, by October, you'll be hearing of member candidates who would then be potentially affirmed in the end of October's Sunday evening fellowship. And so what that means is if you got your membership application in before this morning, you're like under the old covenant system. (laughs) You're coming in under the elders only, so to speak. But if you got it to me this morning, understand you're under the new covenant system. And we'll go through this process we've outlined, and we'll be happy to put you before the congregation. But this means, though, Church Grace Bible, this is your call. This is your judgment that you have to make, because this is your responsibility. So as you think about that, these tricky matters of, wow, I have to assess whether they're a believer or not, whether they truly believe the gospel and this kind of thing, that's heavy. It is, but as you do so, as your pastor, I have a word don't forget your name. We are Grace Bible Church. What that means, as Grace Bible, what do we do? We come around and celebrate the cross. We don't celebrate our own righteousness, how awesome we are at obedience. We celebrate that we got a great Savior who makes up for all of our disobediences. Keep that in mind as you dare think about another believer where they stand with God. We're not about Oh, this is the time to get out your microscopes and magnifying glass so we can uncover every little sin so we can find ways to condemn people. That's not at all what this is about. That's not what a church is. A church is an assembly of sinners around the grace of Jesus Christ. May we never be called judgmental Bible church, but grace Bible church. So let that gracious word of Christ ring in your mind that we'll look at, Lord willing, when we return to Matthew's gospel next week. And it's this. Matthew 18.33, as you consider judging or considering another brother's faith, listen to this. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy or been gracious to you? And to that, to the Lord Jesus, we say, amen. Help us. Let's pray together.